This is Robin Harford from eatweeds.co.uk. Welcome to another edition of the Plants and People podcast. In this episode, I interview Steve Brill, the American forager who got arrested for basically picking a dandelion, which is pretty bonkers, and his very, very knowledgeable 12-year-old daughter called Violet and their parrot, Wisteria. So without much ado, let's get going. I got arrested for eating a dandelion in Central Park in 1986. The uh, then Parks Commissioner, Henry Stern, did not like that I was eating up all of his dandelions. So he put undercover agents on my tour. (laughs) There was a man and a woman. They said they were married. They never held hands or kissed, so I figured they'd been married for a long time. Uh, The man had... uh, hidden camera and he took pictures, I'd hold up the specimens, only I was the specimen. At the end of the tour, I had just eaten the dandelion. They had hidden walkie-talkies. All right, there he is on 81st Street. Go get him. Every park ranger in New York City popped out from behind the bushes. They surrounded me in case I was going to climb up a tree, put me in handcuffs lest I bop them on the head with a dandelion. They searched me. I don't know if they're looking for weeds or weed, uh, but they hauled me off to the police station in handcuffs where they took fingerprints and mug shots. I was charged with criminal mischief for removing vegetation from the park. Could have faced up to a year in jail. And uh, then they made a very bad mistake. They turned me loose. I went home and called every TV station, radio station, and newspaper. This is before the Internet. Next morning on the way to the newsstand, five cops came after me. What do you want? I said, I haven't eaten a single dandelion. One of the cops says, we don't care. We want your autograph. (laughs) This is on front pages of newspapers around the country. I got on top TV shows, everything from CBS Evening News to Letterman. Uh, The BBC interviewed me, so I even made it on your side of the pond. Uh, Eventually, they took me to court. I served Wild Man's Five Borough Salad on the best plans of the five boroughs of New York City on the steps of the Manhattan Criminal Courthouse to reporters and passersby. The press ate it up. I got on all the TV stations, newspapers a second time. Uh, The mayor yelled at the parks commissioner, who then had to turn over a new leaf. He dropped the charges and hired me to lead the same tours I was leading when I was arrested. And uh, I worked for them for the next four years. Years after that, I discovered the real reason why I was arrested. Former Parks Commissioner Adrian Benefee uh, invited me into his office and told me that the Parks management were all uh, terrified that if they tolerated me foraging in the parks, someone would pretend to have been poisoned, uh, (laughs) contrive a lawsuit against the city, and say, look, you allow foraging. Uh, so that was why I, the real reason I was arrested. Now, when you're arrested for one reason and they state a different reason, that's a case of official wrongdoing. It's called false arrest, and I wish they'd do it again.
Yeah, that's that's a great story and crazy story with the kind of the regulators and people in power who kind of go slightly off off on one, as we say over here. So, yeah, Violet, how, how long have you been? Do you want to introduce yourself, Violet, and just tell everybody who you are? Well, it's pretty obvious who you okay, are. Okay, so... Okay, so I'm Violet Brill, and I also help to teach people foraging about edible and wild plants and how to use them in cooking and for medicine for medicinal purposes. And uh, I help people find the plants, and when we go on our tours, I help and do half of the and do half the plants. We each do half of them, right. and it's very fun. It's fun for her, but not for me. She finds all the plants faster than I do, and she steals all my jokes. <laughs> so you're a good cook, Violet. Yeah, I help with a lot of the recipes that we make. We make, like, um, there's this plant called black birch, and um, it tastes like, and when you chew on the twig, it tastes like wintergreen. And we use that to make this tapioca pudding, which is really good. Yeah, we call it stick pudding. Right. Uh, the, I don't know if you have any birches with a strong uh, wintergreen flavor where you are, but the black birch, which is native to the northeast, uh, it contains methyl salicylate. And so, so it's a low-dose aspirin, and you can make tea with it, and Indians actually used it also as medicine. Okay. Yeah, so I gave Violet the twigs to chew on, um, the twigs to chew on, when she was teething, and it always worked. Methyl salicylate also um, is a low-dose aspirin, so it reduces the risk of heart disease. And the latest research I've seen with natural salicylates is, uh, at least in lab dishes, they stop the growth of prostate cancer cells and of breast cancer cells. Really? So okay. if people have this tea regularly, it could reduce the risk of prostate cancer or breast cancer. So what's, what's New York at the moment? What's the, what are you both gathering? Are you eating well, every day wild food? Or? Oh, yeah. The snow, the snow just melted. Um, we, yeah. have, we have a really good uh, chickweed dip that Violet came up with. Let me see if I can pull up the, the recipe here. And we're also close. There are a lot of like um, shoots and greens like that are just coming up. Yeah. Um, like, like field garlic and garlic mustard and a lot of. Um, and we're actually getting what are they called? They're cattails. Yeah, cattails. You you yeah. call them? What do you call them? Um, Reed mace or Bulrush, yeah, you call them bulrush. Yeah, yeah, we just got the first shoots that were coming up, and right. they're really good. Yeah, yeah, I saw your I saw your video on that. The one thing I would add to it, uh, because the green immature flower head is um, uh, a little bit gritty, I find it is incredibly a, a delicious hey. cook with a cooked with a sauce. Yeah, um, I find I find actually I like it. I like just skimming. I mean, the video you're referring to is Marcus Harrison's Wild Food Menu, right. um, and I really like just steaming them and nibbling on them as though they're like a corn. Yeah, so, that's what I do. But I'll I'll put on a vegan hollandaise sauce on top of them. Right, and uh, then the the moistness uh, contrasts the dryness. And they're even better. So here, here's the chickweed dip that Violet made. I presume you have plenty of chickweed where you are. It's oh, yeah. not a plant oh, yeah. here. Uh, so 
she just chopped up garlic and a little bit of a red onion in a food processor and um, the onion had been soaked in water for a while to make it milder and then and then was dried eight cloves of garlic a quarter of a cup of the red onion and I can send you this recipe to put on your website if you want uh, four cups of chickweed four cups of yellow corn chips, the, the, the whole corn ones you buy in the store, quarter cup of white miso for some saltiness and creaminess, two tablespoons of vegan butter substitute or olive oil, two teaspoons of coarse Celtic salt that gives it a crunchiness that the fine salt doesn't, yeah. a teaspoon of dried carrot seeds, I presume you have Queen Anne's lace yeah. where you are, or would have been named after Queen Anne, a teaspoon of paprika and a half teaspoon of nutmeg, and you just grind that in, in a food processor, and it makes an incredible uh, dip and spread. Wonderful. Well done, Violet. That sounds cool. Yeah. So, have you, Violet, have you created any of the recipes that are in your dad's um, the big thick vegetarian cookbook is that still available, Steve? Oh yeah, that's a good. Um, yes. Um, well, yeah, it's still available. Everyone, um, people are buying it, but I didn't create any of those recipes because it came out in, like two thousand one, and I wasn't born yet then. Okay. <laughs> but I've made I've made a lot of them. Um, but I've made uh, most of them that are in there, and yeah. Yeah, and uh, also we are working on another cookbook uh, and videos that have her. Oh yeah, we're work. making videos, um, like a video cookbook where we're um, videotaping the recipes, and then we're going to kind of like make them to like an e something. Yeah, and the re and, and we also we also we also have an app with tons of recipes and plants, and uh, if you ever have the opportunity and want to contribute plants from the British Isles. To the app, then it'll start to go international. Sure. Well, that's something that we can discuss at a later time. Yes. So, yes. What's, where do you see foraging going at the moment? Do you, I mean, how is it in America? Is is it is it just beginning to really take off with all the kind of the the high end chefs? Has it gone mainstream, or is it still quite on the fringes? It's not completely on the fringes. I mean, they did have a foraging writer in the New York Times for a few years, and she started with me as a school kid coming on a on a class trip. Um, and there are chefs that will use some wild foods, basically ramps, which is a really delicious native member of the uh, allium, the onion and garlic family, uh, morels and ostrich fern fiddleheads. I work with chefs maybe once or twice a year, uh, so some of them some of them are getting into wild foods. Uh, the fact that uh, these things are vegan is a turnoff for some of the chefs. They just love the animal products, white flour and sugar, yeah. which uh, is um, not the kind of cuisine that I do. So it's uh, it's definitely growing. And we had we had yeah, one so, tour with a hundred people. Yeah, I think that um, it's like definitely growing because like we start off like um and like not um you started off with one person on your first tour, right? It wasn't my or, no my first tour I had fourteen people, but that year 
uh, I did have one person on one on one of my tours. <laughs> and now we would cancel the tour if only one person signed up. And we normally have um, from like 15 and to once we had 100 people, which is the most we've ever had. Wow. So I think it's definitely like growing a lot more. And the people are finding out about us. I mean, you found out about us, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> so. Well, you, you know, your dad's known. I've known about your dad. I think we've communicated off and on. God, for over ten years, actually, Steve. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're. Because I, I bought your book, right actually. And, I bought uh, your thick um, vegetarian, your vegan cookbook, and that was that's because you signed it. I bought it from you. That's got to be nearly ten years ago. Was yeah, it 10 yeah. Years ago? I, I'm glad. I'm glad you like it. I have I have four other books and a fifth one coming out on April Fool's Day. <laughs> In keeping. I don't know why the publisher decided to do that, but that's but what... But it's definitely coming out on April Fool's Day. Not kidding. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That tour with 100 people was quite, was quite an event. It was at a seashore park called Sunken Meadow Park on, uh, on Long Island, New York. And um, this is the only time I ever turned people away. And the tour met near the park administration office. So I told every single person who signed up, please don't go into the park administration office and announce that we're doing a foraging tour because the, uh, the officials, of course, do have these job wars that will sometimes harass me. So sure enough, someone goes into the administration office and announces, I'm going on a foraging tour. It's happening in five minutes right outside. Uh, so I have a hundred people in front of me. I open my mouth and before a word comes out, this big burly park ranger comes stalking out, plants himself right in front of my face and announces, I want to buy one of your books. <laughs> Man, I got a book sale, but it took 10 years off my life. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So Violet, what do your what do your friends think? Do they help go out foraging with you? Have you managed to encourage them to do that? Well, what I, um, yeah, a lot of my friends um, do foraging with me, um, especially because I'm in seventh grade now. But when I was in elementary school, we did a tour. We did tours for my class every year, and everyone loved it. And um, now a lot of my friends also um, like doing foraging. Um, we go on tours, especially like my friend Caitlin. We go on tours, and um, and it's fun. Excellent. So you're kind of like a youth ambassador for, for young foragers. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of young people are, are into the are into the environment. Yeah. So Steve, what's this book that you're telling us is going to be coming out apparently on April Fool's Day? Yeah, that's called Foraging in New York. It's by uh, it's in the Falcon uh, Falcon Guide series of Globe Pequot Press, and it uh, it's basically uh, very concise as the other books in their series. Very concise uh, guide to common local foods. So, what would be the say the top the top ten foods that? someone visiting New York is likely to, to find? Um, there's probably more than a top ten. The chickweed, the, the cattail, uh, the fat hen or lamb's quarters, uh, field garlic, allium vineale. It's not a native plant, 
So um, it may be in your area. Otherwise, you certainly have other alliums. Yeah. And um, burdock, which is from your your part of the world. Sure. Uh, the latest thing I did with burdock was turn it into vegan beef jerky. Really? I steam it for about 20 minutes to soften it a little bit. What are you steaming? The root here or the leaves or the stem? The, the root. The root. Um, the stem I, I uh, uh, parboil and peel and prepare like artichoke hearts. Those are quite delicious. Yeah. And uh, with, with the root, I slice it thinly. And then I steam it for 20 minutes over vegetable stock. And then I put it in the kind of marinade that is used for beef jerky. So it's apple cider vinegar, tamari soy sauce, uh, fresh apple juice, Lovely. cloves. Uh, what else goes in there? Garlic that is peeled but not cut, which makes it much more mild than the, uh, than the cut garlic. Yep. And then I bake it, and it gets uh, drier and chewier. And when it's about the level of beef jerky, I stop, and okay. it's uh, it's really it's really delicious. That sounds amazing. I serve some of these. I serve some of these things on my tours. Uh, I also the way I made chips with the. Rockweed. Oh, and I never finished telling you. After I make the chips with the rockweed, one of the things I do is mix it with raisins, cashews, and carob chips, and it makes a wonderful uh, trail mix. Yeah. Although once I took the trail mix with me in the summer, and it melted into a gloopy mess, so uh, you couldn't really eat it without getting the melted carob all over everything. So I just left it there, took it home, put it back in the refrigerator, and it solidified. And then I chopped it into pieces, and it made rock candy. So where, when you go foraging in New York, I'm sure the question gets asked to you is, well, what about clean plants? What do, you, do you have specific kind of guidelines for telling people in urban spaces where they're likely to find cleanish plants? As yeah, this is basically the same thing you tell people. Don't pick near heavy traffic. Uh, if something is, if the plants all look wilted, uh, they're spraying stuff there. Uh, stay away from uh, from agricultural fields that are that are sprayed. You know, we have poisonous plants around too. So uh, that's another thing. I do warn people about the poisonous ones. We have one in Central Park that comes from your part of the world called poison hemlock yeah yeah and um that one stops your brain from communicating with your heart and lungs yeah it's an and, interesting one yeah there's only one person in america who's immune to it yeah. very famous guy donald no. trump he has no brain and no heart oh. right so what is the future of foraging do you think steve uh, it's going to keep getting bigger. What do you think, Violet? I think it's going to. I think people are finding more people are finding out about it, and it's going to get more popular, and more people um, are going to start foraging and come on our tours to learn about it, and we'll have lots of ways to learn about to um, to forage. Now I have some questions for you because we have some of the same plants that you have. 
that seem to have different properties. It might be from you that I learned um, that lesser celandine is edible. Yeah. And um, I tried it here, and it was acrid. It is in the buttercup family, which has uh, plants with acrid poisons. Well, in what it. we so, do with it is that, and what we do with it is we um, we put it in with bitter foods. We put it, um, we put the quantity in with bitter foods, and it'll take away the bitterness. Okay, so, yeah, so are you eating you, it raw or are you eating it cooked? We no, eat I, it raw because it kind of has an acrid poison. So we cook it with other bitter greens and it takes away the bitterness. First, I parboil it in lightly salted water for two minutes. The bitterness is totally gone, and then it's completely bland. So for years, I thought, well, this is a survival food, but not something, uh, uh, not something that's really going to taste good. Yeah. And then I finally realized, why don't I try it uh, to tone down uh, bitter things? Like if you cook down garlic mustard, it shrinks and the bitterness concentrates. Yeah. So I did that. Uh, I mixed in the lesser celandine, and it totally took away the uh, took away the bitterness. Okay. Because I don't I, find I, it bitter at all, actually. But I, we pick it pre-flowering. When yeah. We, so do we. When we. Uh, when I think that. There's something called the founder effect, where when a, uh, a species comes to another country, um, all the plants in that country take on the characteristics of the first individual that made it across the uh, the ocean. So it might have been one particularly acrid, uh, ver uh, acrid individual of the lesser selenine that made it here. Wow, is that are you being serious? The founder effect. Yeah, that's a well-known. That's a well-known uh, biological concept for uh, species that uh, that go into new places. They take on the characteristics of that first individual species rather than the whole population. Wow! And another another one. You you eat um, henbit dead nettle. Yeah, which came over here, and that is so. Foul smelling, foul tasting, and awful. Yeah. I've tried all kinds of things with it. Yeah, don't worry, you're not. It's, it's the same over here. <laughs> oh, okay. There are all some right. plants that are just like, yeah, okay. That's definitely not in the gourmet category. It's kind of like if you had to. But the thing I like about foraging is, is that you know, it, we got such a diversity of plants to choose from that it's just like, well, okay, that one's really not doesn't rock my boat. So I'm just. Go next, find something else. Yeah. Do you have any American plants that came over that you like? Mm. No, no pokeweed. No pokeweed. Well, I've got a friend that grows pokeweed in London, but it doesn't grow wild, as far as I know. So I've certainly never heard anyone or seen it around. That's a, that's an interesting one. Uh, it uh, has saved lives and killed people. Yeah. It's a very large weedy plant. It contains phytolacin, which is a gastric irritant. Uh, so if you just pick it and stick it in your mouth, you get severe vomiting and diarrhea and you die of dehydration. Nice. Uh, the poison is water-soluble. So you have two pots of boiling water, a large one and a medium pot. You get the shoots. Make sure there's no root attached because the root has too much of the, of the poison. And get it in the springtime. And... Uh, chop up the roots and boil it for one minute, throw out the water, pour in more boiling water, 
Maybe one boiling is enough, but I'm not going to take a chance. No. Uh, throw, uh, boil it another minute, throw out the water, put it in a third water, and boil it until it's been boiled for about 15 minutes. Uh, in the Deep South, they cook this with fat back, which is pig fat, which is a good idea from a culinary standpoint. You get fat, which uh, greatly uh, enhances the delicious flavor of pulp wheat. You get salt and you get the imame or savory flavoring. So I do an analog where while the pokeweed is boiling, I lightly saute garlic in olive oil. As soon as the garlic starts to turn brown, I remove it from the uh, flame and pour on some tamari soy sauce to stop the garlic from cooking so it doesn't burn and get bitter. And then I mix that in with the drained pokeweed when it's done. So you have the savory, the amame, uh, plus the salt and the fat from the olive oil. It is incredibly delicious. Uh, pokeweed has actually saved people's lives because in the 19th century, uh, farmers had no fresh produce, especially out in the frontier, and no, had no fresh produce all winter, and by springtime, when they had to start planting the fields, which wouldn't produce until summer, they were dying of vitamin A deficiency. Yeah. So the Native Americans showed them pokeweed, and it, uh, it saved their lives. Same thing with black people who were enslaved in the Deep South, uh, given really bad food, and would also be uh, deficient in vitamin A. And vitamin A is fat-soluble, not water-soluble, so it's not destroyed by the boil. My only question with that one is, if you're, double, if, you know, if you're triple boiling it, how much nutrition is actually remains, or are we just going for the flavor and a bit of... No, the vitamin A, the vitamin A, which yeah. is the main thing that saved people's lives. That's fat-soluble, so the boiling doesn't, uh, doesn't affect it. Yeah, I, I usually don't boil uh, plants. I don't like parboiling. Sometimes it's uh, necessary, like with the lesser selenine that we have here yeah. and, and pokeweed. But the vitamin A uh, remains. If there's any vitamin K or other fat-soluble vitamins, they will, uh, they will be there. And that is an incredibly wonderful vegetable. So do you dehydrate your foods much? Uh, I do have a food dehydrator, so I yeah, have... Yeah, we, um, we have, we collect oyster mushrooms also, um, and we dehydrated, we cooked some of them, and then we dehydrated the rest of them, and, um, and then we could use them again, and, um, we also dehydrate things like the black birch that I mentioned earlier, yeah. um, and it still has its flavor. Wow. Yeah, oh, with the, with the black birch, uh, the pudding, uh, we make is a tapioca pudding with soy milk and to complement the wintergreen flavor of the black birch we put in freshly grated lemon rind and fresh vanilla bean um, and raisins we simmer that and then we remove the twigs at the end and it's called stick pudding so violet what's your favorite wild edible um well of course there's the violet um there's also wisteria, and, um, well, I like, there's a plant called wood sorrel. Yeah. I have, like, the common plants, like black birch, wood sorrel. Wood sorrel, it tastes like lemonade, and... And shamrock. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, and I also like plants, they're just, like, the common ones. Um, 
we make chocolate truffles out of the, um, we put Kentucky coffee seeds in chocolate truffles, so I like the Kentucky coffee tree, and, um, just, like, I like the common ones that you just, like, you find everywhere, like, they're not, like, extremely important, um, like, I mean, they are really important, but they're not, like, a big find, like, if you just found something, like, that's, like, you would normally find, yeah. but they're, um, they're, like, like, little trail nibbles that you can, like, snack on, um, and... Oh, you love the berries. Love them, I, oh, the berries, and the nuts, um, the berries, like, June berries, they're, like, so good. Also called service berries. And... The nuts, like the black walnut, we still, um, we store them, we have them in jars in our cabinets, um, and they're dried, and you crack them open with a rock, you eat them, and they're, and they're also really good. So I like those common plants that you find. Yeah, here we have black walnuts, we have butternuts, which Hickory are also nuts. native in the, both in the juglans uh, genus, uh, same as the English walnut. Hickory nuts. Yeah, we have hickory hickory nuts, uh, several, several species. Once in a while, we get a few beech nuts, but the squirrels get them oh, first. Oh, I found the tree of the beech nuts. Remember that? Yes, yes. Do you have any success with, uh, with beech nuts where you, where you are, or do the, uh, do the wildlife get them first? No, the beech nuts are, the, are, are easy enough to gather. It's the hazelnuts that are a problem, or the cob nuts. Um, with beech mast, yeah. It's that the secret is finding the ones that have the mast within. So again, that goes down to knowing how to gather your your beech nuts first. But actually, we had a we had a Victorian gentleman years well, obviously in Victorian times, who yes. basically put forward that we could pay off the national debt of Britain. If I read that, that. Yeah, that was again. That was a, a tip from Marcus when he did some some research in the British Library. That this this guy basically approached the treasury and said, "Look, we've got enough beech nuts around that we can we can harvest them, press the oil, and sell the oil, and that will pay off the national debt." Unfortunately, he was of a slightly Jewish disposition, and in Victorian days, bigotry was even more hardcore than it is today. And um, no one bothered listening to him, which was a bit stupid. Because we bad. Have I, know there was, I know there was another Englishman uh, who tried bringing black locust trees over to England because okay. the wood is rot resistant. So after a few generations of living in the same house, you wouldn't have the house falling on people's heads. Yeah. Did that have, are you familiar with that? And did that have any success? And do you use the flowers of the black locust tree? Yeah, I haven't seen black locust where I am. I've seen it in London. Yeah, if you ever get a chance, you should definitely get your hands on some of the flowers. I made yeah. wine with them, which is delicious. And I make all kinds of puddings with them. I bake those into breads. They're very large, sweet blossoms uh, with a flavor similar to vanilla. One thing I've learned is don't use vanilla in the same recipe or it becomes overpowering. Yeah, right. Does that you actually, so if you dry them, does the vanilla, is that going to be coumarins in it? Uh, yeah, I tend I, I, it loses a lot when you dehydrate it. So what I okay. tend to do is uh, freeze them on a cookie sheet and then put them in an airtight container in the freezer. Yeah, and that works. Uh, that works quite well. 
And I don't know if you can hear Violet's parakeet wisteria, uh, but the wisteria vine also has delicious flowers. That was brought over from East Asia to America by a a man by the name of Wister, and therefore it's called wisteria. Those are uh, purple blossoms that taste sweet and perfumed. Uh, they were grown as an ornamental, and they spread. They have this really big, thick, woody vine that can uh, get like uh, uh, a foot or two across. Do you have that where you are? Yeah, no. Wisteria is, is is one of my favorite edible flowers, and I absolutely love it. I make a wisteria flower vinegar, which is just heaven. Yeah. How do you, what do you do? Just soak the uh, vinegar with the wisteria blossoms? I get a Japanese rice wine vinegar, but the clear one. Okay. And I just literally will get a load of the blossoms and pop them in a jar and pour the rice wine vinegar over it and just let it sit. And the color that comes out, I mean, within 24 hours, it's gone this beautiful heart pink color. And the smells extraordinary. So it's definitely one worth trying. And, and I, I really like simple food. So, you know, I might just steam some vegetables and just drizzle some of that over with some oil. It's just I, extraordinary. I will definitely do that, and I'll put that in my app, and, of course, I'll give you credit for that one. Yeah. I would never thought of thought of that. Uh, and Violet's uh, parakeet, Violet's budgie wisteria can supervise me while I'm doing the recipe. Yeah. Well, anything that you would like to say before we part company on this digital airwaves? Well, I guess I want people to go out and forage responsibly and safely and bring kids uh, with them. I do. We both do a lot of work with kids of all ages. And uh, if we're going to have a planet that we can live on in the future, we need a lot more environmental awareness that is disappearing from schools around here where standardized tests are the goal of education. There's very, very little outdoor education. Uh, Violet could do uh, tours for the teachers of her school and teach them about the local um, nature preserve right next to the school that's totally ignored. Yeah, that they're too busy, with, uh, too busy with testing. That's why Violet's here. We opted out of these uh, uh, awful standardized state tests, and she doesn't have to go to school until... Uh, <laughs> Uh, for another hour and 15 minutes. And I think that people should just, like, we want people to know to take care of the environment around them. And by, um, and we're letting people be aware of this. And by letting people be aware of this, they're helping even more. And uh, especially now, I think that the environment um, really, like, it needs help. And that, and that people should just like be aware of it so they can like take care of the environment uh, and also Earth Day is coming up and um, we're doing an event for Earth Day as well and yeah okay and the last thing we have to say this is we have to say this is our instrument called the Brillophone that uh, I inherited from my dad and it is. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
the best That's all, folks. Thank you very much. This is a great pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for a really long time. I'm very happy we got to do this. Yeah, great. Thank you very much, Violet and Steve, and Steve and Violet. And any of Steve's resources can be found underneath this podcast on the eatweeds.co.uk website. Okay, Okay, guys. thank Thank you very much.